We're going to be in the book of Colossians this morning. We'll bounce around to some other passages, but we're going to be based in Colossians. I want to tell you a little bit about how we came to be here at this sermon today. Um, this is going to be a kind of a teaser sermon, and we'll really get into it next week since so many aren't able to be here. It's kind of funny. I sent out that message, try not to miss these four Sundays starting this Sunday, and then all of a sudden chaos rains from the skies, and many are missing this Sunday. Uh, but that's okay. It'll be five Sundays. This will be sort of the introduction, and we'll do the meat of it the next four Sundays. But uh, I am glad you're here, and I'll share with you a little bit um, on a personal note, I guess, how we came to be here at, at what we'll be thinking about in the next several Sundays. Um, so last fall was pretty tough for me. It was actually the hardest time I've had in the 10 years I've been in ministry for various reasons. It was just really difficult, and it came to sort of an acute climax of challenge, and I was not doing real great. Um, and my wise wife said, you should go to Crowder's Mountain and just get away just a little bit and gain some perspective on things. I didn't even know it was over there. That's the name of it, right? Crowder's Mountain? I didn't realize it was just so close. Um, so I did. I just so that seems like a good idea. I'm kind of spiraling here. I grabbed my Bible and my notebook. I actually have the notebook here um, that I took with me. It was very, very poorly planned trip. I had no water or anything. I just went. I was wearing blue jeans. You know how hot it is in September. I just went, and all I had was my my Bible and, and my journal. It was this one, and I parked and I, I hiked up to the top of the mountain there, where you can see the distance, even the Charlotte skyline way off in the distance. And um, on the way up, I meditated on just the next passage of scripture that I came to in my personal path through the Bible. It was the last chapter in Hosea, of all places, and it, it's a chapter all about um, God inviting his people just to come back to, to him, to repent of idolatry, to trust in him, and a promise that he would, he would help them to flourish, that they didn't need to trust in other things like foreign nations, armies, and stuff like that. So, you know, it was a word to ancient Israel, but it was a word to me also. It was a reminder to me of God's character uh, that really ultimately in all the, um, the difficulty that I was experiencing last fall, I just needed to humble myself, turn to him. I needed to acknowledge that I had some sin involved in some of my difficulties and repent of those things, particularly some idolatry issues that I struggle with. And you struggle with idolatry issues too, so don't look at me like that. Um, it ended up being a, just a a very important time with the Lord, uh, one of those landmark days with the Lord. And so I, pr- I prayed through that passage on the way up. I just sort of had my Bible and I would just read a, a couple of next verses and I would just walk and try to meditate with the Lord on what it meant and um, sat at the top. And on, on the way down, continuing to pray, I, by the time I reached the bottom, I just had a completely um, refreshed sense of calling here. I mean, it was bad enough. I was really wondering, is this a sign that I'm just not cut out for this anymore? It was really tough. Um, but by the time I reached the bottom, God was like, there, there, <laughs> you'll have worse times than this. Relax. Um, yes, this is, this is where I want you to be. And, uh, just trust me. You're going to be okay. And, but along with that reassurance, which by the way, that alone was sweet enough. And if you're in a really hard time right now, 
Hang in there and go to the Lord in prayer and with your Bible open. He's a good father and he loves his children. He'll, he'll gather you patiently to himself and comfort you, I promise. Um, but along with the, the reassurance came this um, sense of clarity. I was just clearer than I've been before about direction for us as a church. Um, and, and the first step was surprising to me, but I felt that based on everything I knew to be true, that we should work on sharpening and strengthening our understanding to church membership. And that was unexpected for me because really, uh, in the course of my ministry, I've been shaky on church membership, actually questioning if it's even biblical because it's not really spelled out directly in the Bible. You know, you should have church membership process and a list and all these things. Um, But I've come to believe that it is an essential spiritual discipline. I see it as a spiritual discipline, just like Bible reading and prayer. I I think that the majority of what God has called us to do in the New Testament letters has to do with what we are to do together and for one another as the church family. And I think that without that formal commitment, it's just too easy to escape the difficult things we're called to do with and for one another. So... Out of that was born the new members class. I invited all the young couples where spouses have married sort of into the church family, but not all the way into the church family, hadn't joined to come. And uh, it has been a really great summer working with those couples who came. That's where the Sunday evening services came from. I wanted a space where I could talk to the church and there could be back and forth related to some of the issues I saw as connected to church membership. So we did that over the summer. I think it was really fruitful. And that's where these sermons are coming from. So for the next couple of weeks, we're, we're going to look at the, the four major things that we looked at in the class and on those Sunday evenings. And it's who is Jesus Christ? That's foundational. What is a Christian? What is the church? And what is a church member? And that's, that's the plan for these next couple of weeks. And I just want to... I just want to, I'd walk you through all that so you'll know that this isn't some strategery that I dreamed up. Uh, This sense of direction came from some pretty agonizing prayer. And I really think that this is the next best healthy thing we can be focused on. And on the other side of this, I think, is uh, an invigorated, I hope, an invigorated effort toward equipping and mobilizing the church for evangelism, discipleship, and missions. But I think if we don't get these things locked down pretty deep down in our DNA, it's going to be hard for us to do any of that successfully. For one thing, what would we be inviting them into exactly? It, it becomes nebulous and ill-defined. And, um, so that's, that's how we came to be here. I approached this first question of who is Jesus Christ, because I think that's where you have to start to understand why should we even deal with church membership um, I approached it different ways in the class and the Sunday evenings, and the way I want to approach it here from the pulpit is just, I have one passage that I want to preach through, and it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. But this morning is just going to be the first point. We're only going to look at verse 15. Now, if you, if you flip over there in Colossians, if your Bible has headings, my heading over this passage is the preeminence of Christ. And it's a good heading for what we're going to see in this this paragraph. But that's the idea that Jesus is superior to all others. He is superior above and beyond anybody and everybody else. He stands apart as distinct from anybody and everybody else. 
And it's good for us to remind ourselves of that because what Christianity calls us to is radical, is radical faith and allegiance to this one man, is putting all of our eggs in this one basket of Jesus Christ. So I think it's good to regularly refresh our understanding of who this man is if we're going to be that serious about following him as I think we should be. So Colossians chapter 1, I'm just going to read verse 15. This is just one element of who Jesus is. He is the image of God. And we'll meditate on that together, and it'll lead, I think, pretty well into the Lord's Supper this morning. So let's read that verse together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I have to come back next week for the firstborn of all creation. This week, we're just going to think about he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. This notion of the image of God is... It strikes a rich vein throughout the Bible of a lot of deep theological truth. It gets into mysteries that are hard, if not impossible, for us to fully understand. But let's park here for a minute. There, there's at least four aspects of Jesus being the image of the invisible God that I'd like us to consider together. And they, each of them is a big word. I'll tell you the four. Manifestation representation, resemblance, and communication. These are the four, the four aspects we're going to consider. What does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? One part of it is manifestation. It means that Jesus is making the invisible God visible among us. If you read through the Bible where it talks about images in this light, it actually very, very often is referring to idols. So an idol, I've got my classic example of an idol here. I've used this so many times, this hippopotamus. So if I were in some primitive society and I wanted to worship some hippopotamus god to give me hippo strength to do what I needed to do in life, what many civilizations have done and throughout the Bible would be to create some physical object that could be the manifestation of that invisible spiritual reality that we believe in. So if I want to worship the hippo god, I might create something like this physical hippo. It's not that I necessarily think that this is the entirety of this hippo god, but I think that this is the physical manifestation of hippo god. So when I pray to this, I'm praying to hippo god. Uh, this is how idolatry has worked throughout history. And so it's really interesting to note that the Bible refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible god. That same word in Greek, it would be pronounced icon, where we get our word for an icon. That Jesus is the physical representation of the one true invisible God. He is his manifestation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, many of you already know this, but we were created in God's image. Humanity was. said, so then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we too were meant to in some way be little image bearers of God. We were supposed to represent him here in some way, which leads to the second idea 
So the first idea is Jesus is the physical manifestation of God in earth, on earth. And the second idea closely associated with that is representation. Jesus is the perfect representation of God on earth. See, mankind was designed to represent God here on earth, but failed, and that's what the fall is all about. We messed it all up. Jesus perfectly represented God here on earth. This is sort of like ACGC staff. I understand that if you're in another conference or region, you're to see yourself there as a representation of the Advent Christian General Conference. Jesus was here as a representation of God himself, and he did it perfectly. Flipping over toward the back of the Bible, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's talking about Jesus. He's saying he was here, he was physical, we could touch him. He was a physical manifestation and representation of God here in flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the image of God. He is the conduit of God's work in this world. There's also closely associated with this the idea of resemblance. Do you remember when the religious people came to Jesus and said, should God's people pay taxes? And he said, who has a coin? And somebody had a coin. He said, who's image is on there, whose likeness is on there. And they said, Caesar's. He said, well, render to Caesar what's Caesar, and to God what is God's. And the idea was, you bear God's image, you belong to God, give yourself to God, give the coin to Caesar. No big deal, because it bears his image and his representation. Jesus being the image of God also means that he is the perfect resemblance of God, the perfect likeness of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says it very poetically. Hebrews 1 verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. For us, it's that first point. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus Christ. He is the likeness. He is the image of the invisible God. And the last idea, I think, contained in this notion of Jesus being the image of God is communication. Remember in John chapter 1, he begins similarly in a poetic way. Let's see, actually, First Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. He writes, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is God's clearest communication to the world. And this is what John was getting at back in John chapter 1. Verse 1 and then verse 14. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I was trying to think of what would be a modern way of understanding this communication aspect of Jesus as the image of God. And I think a good example would be emojis. 
If you text a lot, if you've started to use emojis, you've come to realize how that little image of that face can convey what it would take many, many words to convey. It's actually very useful. That little image conveys a great deal of communication from you to another person. And that's part of what Jesus' function is. He is God's clearest communication to us. In Jesus Christ is communicated all of God's attributes, his love, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his truth, his glory. Now, I walk you through all this, and I want us just to stop with, with this one idea of Jesus as the image of God. To begin to point out to you and remind you that there is no one else like Jesus Christ. Nobody else images God, the invisible God, like Jesus Christ does. There is no guru out there that you can follow with as much confidence as you can follow Jesus Christ. There is no business leader, self-improvement tycoon that you can trust like you can trust Jesus Christ. There is no human mentor in your life that you can trust like you can trust Jesus Christ. There is no person that you should devote yourself to as wholly as you should devote yourself to Jesus Christ. He alone matches all the criteria necessary to be the Savior and the Lord. And this is just one of many aspects of what makes him so glorious and so worthy. He is the image of the invisible God. Without him, there would be no way to know God. But with him, we can know God and be reconciled to him. Without him, we'd be left to build our lives around the puny temporary pleasures of this world until it ends. And then it's no more. But with him, we can know God himself. When I prepare a sermon, I have some questions I run through. And one of them is, what's the aim And my aim with this brief sermon before the Lord's Supper is just to refresh and strengthen your commitment to Jesus Christ. To reinforce it. Because the world, kind of like the storm blowing through, the world will erode it and distract you from it. But he is worthy of our allegiance and our faith. Non-believers, I would hope, would consider how he answers all their deepest longings in connecting them to God. And believers, I hope, would renew their faith in him. I've got one more passage to read as we ease into the Lord's Supper. And that's Philippians chapter 2. The reason Jesus is able to so perfectly come and be the image of God and even reconcile us who are broken image bearers to God, is because he is God. He's God in the flesh. A writer named Tim Keller gave this illustration, and I'm going to pass it along to you. I think it's just such a cool illustration of what God has done. But in understanding how Jesus represents God in this world, he talks about the author Dorothy Sayers. I don't know if anybody's familiar with her. She wrote a series of detective novels with the main character named Lord Peter Whimsey. I don't know if you guys would read books with the main character named Lord Peter Whimsey or not, but they're very popular, uh, very popular series of books. And about halfway through the series, a new character shows up. So Lord Peter Whimsey is this disheveled kind of bachelor guy, lonely, his life's really not great, but he's good at solving crimes. 
Halfway through the series of novels, a new character shows up, and it's a woman who comes into Lord Peter Wimsey's life and slowly begins to solve all of Lord Peter Wimsey's, God, I can't even say his name anymore, all of his deeper problems of loneliness and a need for companionship. And what's interesting is this new character was one of the very first women to ever graduate from Oxford. Well, what do you know? It? So is Dorothy Sayers. And this new character was a writer of mystery novels. Well, what do you know? It? So is Dorothy Sayers. And the, the similarities didn't stop there. And it became evident as folks read the books that she had written herself into her own story to solve the problems of her main character. And that is, in essence, what God has done through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, he has written himself into his own creation to solve his main character's greatest problem. Now, that's not perfect because God is the main character. But it's beautiful what God has done through Jesus. And it's captured well in Philippians chapter 2. And we'll read this and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that brings us to the table. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper now. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about it, but before we do, I do want to invite everybody for just a moment to, to stand up. Um, we, we only have, I think, two, two deacons with us. Um, if you're able to, would you mind, let's, let's all sort of congregate in the front and center here of the church and be together. And I'm not just doing that for logistical convenience. Um, the Lord's Supper, in large part, is about us experiencing and, and uh, enjoying our unity in Christ. So I think it's fitting that we sit together. Yeah, let's not sit in this pew, however, because there's, there's leaks here. Yeah, beware of leaks. You'll see the wet spots. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you coming together like that. Um, I want to share a couple of thoughts about the Lord's Supper before we, before we um, partake of it together. So Jesus really only gave us a couple of real clear things that, that we're to do um, in, in, at all of a, a formal way like this. It's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the rest of our lives are supposed to be all intertwined and we're supposed to be doing all kinds of stuff in obedience to Jesus for each other. But these are sort of the big two things. So this is important, what we do here at the Lord's Supper. I, I came across a phrase that captures it. It's a ceremonial distillation of his final meal with his disciples before he left. And he told them to continue this, to keep doing this. And it, it serves several functions. It re-centers us on Christ regularly. And we need that so much because we so quickly just leave the things of Jesus Christ and get involved in our own stuff, our own ideas. But ultimately, what we have here is very simple. We all are sinful people who have been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so we recenter on Jesus every time we partake of these elements together. And in doing that, it refreshes our unity as a church. We remember that whatever else may be different about us, at core, we are the same because we belong to Jesus Christ. So I'm glad you're here to do this this morning. I appreciate you sitting together. 
Uh, I know people like to stay where they're used to staying. Um, so who should receive the Lord's Supper? It's those who are Christians. Uh, it kind of seems like a no-brainer, but it needs to be said. It's those who are trusting and following Jesus as their Lord. That's what we mean by Christians. Not just those who are associated with the church, but those who actually have trusted in him as their Savior are following him as their Lord. And that includes baptism. I personally like to let baptism be first and then to begin to receive the Lord's Supper. That's not a legalism. I'm not, I'm not going to enforce that real heavily, but I think that's the right sequence. I think of baptism kind of as the marriage and the Lord's Supper kind of as the vow renewal. And it makes sense logically to me. Uh, it needs to be those who have confessed and repented of all known sin. Now, what I mean by that is, if you are living in any ongoing unrepentant sin, you need to deal with that before the Lord, before receiving the bread and the cup. And we'll have a little time for prayer for that. We all are going to sin. We are all still putting on the new nature that is ours in Christ. The difference, though, is between sinning and then going to the Lord and repenting and saying, help me to change, versus sinning and justifying it and embracing it as a lifestyle. You don't want to come to the Lord's table embracing your sin as a lifestyle. So some of us may have some repentance we need to pray through. The Holy Spirit will guide us in that. Um, The last caveat I have has to do with church membership. I'm going to dwell on this for a moment because this is what the Lord is teaching us these days. You don't have to be a member of our church to receive the Lord's Supper together. Um, But I do think it is the normal healthy state for a Christian to be a member of a local church. That wasn't always my conviction, but it is my conviction now. And I just want to give you a couple reasons for that. Um, It's not mentioned in the Bible. Church membership isn't mentioned. But the level of commitment to a localized group of Christians is assumed in the Bible. They just weren't as mobile as we were. They they didn't have the, the Golden Corral buffet of churches laid out in front of their house that we do. And so they were just, if they were going to be in it with other Christians, they were in it together. And they had to stick it out even when things got hard. But it's not that way for us. You know, if, if, um, you know, if Daniel bothers me, if I'm just a church member, I can be like, I'm not going back to that church again. Daniel Balser's a member there. I'll go three paces down the road to this church and I'll join this church. And then somebody annoys me there, well, I'll go down to this church. And we just bounce around. But when, when we're able to that quickly eject, uh, it, it short circuits so much of what the Lord wants to do among us. Because I'm telling you, I... I've never been so convinced that the majority of what he wants to do in your life is going to come through the ministry of those sitting around you. Not just me or or a sermon you can listen to in your car. He he builds us up by using us to build each other up. So my my snappy little phrase is, um, as a kite needs a string, a church needs church membership. It's, it's, It's the tether. That enables us to fly. <laughs> I just I, I think that the kind of community God is developing is impossible without clear, firm commitment to each other. Commitment that will, will withstand really difficult things that would pull us apart otherwise. Um, some other reasons. Christians need to know who they're responsible for in order to be obedient to what the Bible teaches. As a Christian, you have responsibility for your church. Now, there's a sense in which you're responsible for any Christians that you have a sphere of influence, that you're influential over. 
But there's some specific things that we're called to do for one another, particularly when one of us strays into ongoing unrepentant sin, that are just hard to really do if we're not clear on who is my church. So church membership helps us to know who am I responsible for, who am I going to give an account to. And you guys are responsible for each other as members of the same church. Church membership is also helpful for you to know to whom you are responsible. Because we are supposed to hold each other accountable. So I had somebody email me this last week. They had read one of my sermon recaps that I wrote years ago. And they were accusing me of blasphemy. Uh, It's complicated to explain how I think they got there. So in one sense... Am I accountable to this person? They claim to be a Christian. I don't know who they are, where they live, where they came from. Am I really accountable to them? Do I need to drop everything and comb through that sermon and and make sure it wasn't blasphemous? In one sense, yes, and I did, and I don't think it was blasphemous, and I responded to them. But ultimately, I don't feel really answerable to them. They don't know me at all. They weren't here for the sermon. They're not a part of our family. Now, if one of you came to me and said, Matt, what you said was blasphemous. That's a whole different matter because I'm answerable to you. And I think you're answerable to each other. And I think we've got to get this straight or else we'll have a continued pattern where from time to time one of us will start to back away from Christ and start to embrace sin and start to live in sin and nobody will be able to say anything about it because we didn't realize we're supposed to be answerable to each other. So it's very helpful to know what the boundaries are. Part of this comes from the scriptures. Um, Specifically, 1 Corinthians 5.12, where they're dealing with an issue where someone has strayed into sin. Um, Paul's telling them how to handle it, but he says this in verse 12. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So there's this notion that there's an outside and there's an inside. It's really helpful to know the distinction between the outside and the inside in order to do the hard work that God calls us to do together. Another reason I think it's helpful to practice church membership is it helps you to know who your pastor is or who your pastors are if we ever have more than one pastor. Are, are you to... Um, I'm going to read this passage. I always feel uncomfortable reading it. Um, I didn't write this. <laughs> Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. Okay. Who is your pastor, if you're not a part of a local church with some level of commitment, how do you know who your pastor actually is? Are you to obey and submit to just any Christian leader? You've got Christian leaders potentially speaking into your life from all over the place. You've got television, televangelists on TV. They are setting themselves up to be a Christian leader. Do we need to obey and submit to them? I think church membership is helpful so you can be clear about, okay, well, who is the spiritual authority God has placed in my life? And before you think that's really self-aggrandizing, my last point, church membership is really helpful because it helps pastor to know who they're pastoring. Because the second half of that verse, I'll read it all. The first half is, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. The second half is, They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So who all am I going to have to give an account for? Is it everybody that has breezed through the doors? Well, again, I think in some sense, yes, I'll be held responsible for the influence I had on anybody that comes through. But I feel a unique and heavy sense of responsibility for those who have committed and said, yes, I'm part of this church family under your leadership as a pastor. I'm committed to you, and I expect you to be committed to me. 
So church membership is, is not a legalism, but it's also not extra-biblical. I think it's a logical outcome of trying to obey what is biblical. Okay, so that was a, a long explanation that you guys weren't expecting before the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of our church, but I, I do want you to heavily consider being a member of a church for all the reasons I just said. Okay. Now, with all that being said, let's prepare ourselves to receive these elements together. Um, we always read 1 Corinthians 11 when we approach the, the table. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, please prepare our hearts to receive this little piece of bread, this little cup of juice, in light of what it represents. Jesus' broken body, shed blood, in payment for our sins to reconcile us to you and one another. Let us be fully and completely united in Christ as we receive this. Amen.